Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we are going to look at Commander Keen, a side-scrolling platformer developed by Ideas from the Deep and published by Apogee Software in 1990 for the MS-DOS computer platform and operating system. We're going to talk about that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, we have a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number nine. It has been awesome so far. I hope it continues to be awesome, and I hope that everybody continues to come along for the ride. I do want to build a community around this podcast, and if you have any ideas or would like to reach out, provide feedback, or would like to suggest new games to cover on a future episode, I would love to hear from you. I do have a couple of ways you can reach out to me. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. So if anybody feels like reaching out and either having a discussion about classic games or technology or, like I said, providing feedback or suggestions, I am looking forward to hearing what you all have to say. For anybody who may be new, welcome. I just want to take a brief moment to go over what the anatomy of an episode is, because for the most part, every single episode follows a similar format. First, we start talking about the history of the game, the historical context in which the game existed. And then, after we talk history, we will jump into a pseudo-review kind of section. We don't really give a score, but we do look at the typical review kinds of things, like graphics, sound, and music, the narrative and story, if the game has one, playability and controls, and overall feel. And based on that discussion, we will reach a verdict as to whether the game still holds up today. And to do that, we assign one of several categories. At the very top, if a game is a true certifiable classic, and it is as good today as it was when it was released, it may gain entry into the pantheon of classic gaming. That means you should still play this today. It is just that darn good. There are some games that don't quite reach the pantheon level, but are still great experiences that you should experience yourself. Those games fall into our golden oldie category. That means that you probably should play it. I definitely enjoyed it and I recommend it. Certainly, if you have nostalgia for the genre or the game, go ahead and play it. It is a darn good experience. Moving on from the golden oldies, we have our mediocre mentions. These are starting to be the games that I can't really recommend. You could still have a good time, especially if you have a nostalgia for the game itself, or you really enjoy the genre, go ahead and play it, but I can't recommend it to the general population. And then we have the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. These games, I can't recommend at all. They either have not aged well or have aged very poorly, or they may have not been that great experiences to begin with. So feel free, give them a pass. If you want to play them, go ahead play them. I can't control you, nor would I want to. But these are games that I absolutely cannot recommend in good conscience. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Commander Keen. Commander 
Commander Keen is a side-scrolling platformer game developed by Ideas from the Deep and published by Apogee Software in 1990 for the Microsoft DOS computer platform and operating system. So before we talk about Commander Keen, the game, we've got to go a little bit back in history and talk about software distribution in the early computing timeline. And we're talking late 1970s at this point. So I do just want to take a little bit of a moment, really, to talk about computer history. Computers historically, especially before they became pervasive in the home, were oftentimes large monolithic machines that would sometimes take up whole rooms. The original computers like ENIAC and UNIVAC, which were gigantic mainframe systems, they were actually room-sized computers and most likely had less computing power than what you might have in your wristwatch today. But these were gigantic machines that took up a huge amount of real estate. Now, over time, those machines started to become smaller and more accessible, and that was really driven by the creation and miniaturization of transistors, which eventually allowed for computers to uh, become more pervasive in the home, or at least not so much just these gigantic machines that took up an entire room's worth of space. But even at that time, computers were thought of as productivity machines, not really gaming devices which meant that software was not readily available for computers in the late 70s. There were a couple of examples, a couple of games started to pop up, and there were certain hobbyist communities that were starting up to try to really harness the power of computers for things other than productivity, but this was not a broad thing yet. And stores, they didn't really carry tons of software at the time. There were no broad distribution networks for games. It wasn't like you had a ton of publishers that would be releasing content or releasing games out to the stores and big publishing houses. They just didn't exist at the time. So if you wanted to distribute a computer program or a computer game or something like that, local distribution was the name of the game. And the way that people usually did that was by actually going physically into stores that are local to your area or traveling around and going to different stores and bringing discs in plastic baggies to your local electronics shop and convincing the owners to carry those products or carry that software in their store, sell it at their uh, register or counter or whatever the case might be. There were print-based publications that would distribute software, which started to get a little bit more broad exposure of computer programs. But those publications actually provided a printed out version of entire programs that you as a hobbyist would have to copy into your computer. That meant that when you would get this magazine, you would literally open up the page whatever, and you would see a program that you would have to type into your computer. So think about that. And now granted, these programs were not all that complex. They weren't like thousands of lines of code or things like that. But even trying to transcribe a little bit of computer code from a magazine into a computer, you had the potential for typos or mistakes and just it wasn't an ideal experience. And also because computer programs, I mean, generally speaking, even if they're not that many lines of code, it takes up a good amount of space printed out. You were completely dependent or software developers were completely dependent on having printed space in magazines, which meant the kinds of software that was distributed in these magazines really couldn't be too complex. There just wasn't enough space to print them all. And then once again, if they did print a huge program, it would be much more difficult to type into your computer. So it didn't really happen. That really wasn't something that was 
able to be done with magazines at the time. So that meant that most of the software that was distributed via this means were mostly smaller applications and very simple games. That started to change with the concept of the disc magazine. This was a direct response to address the print-based issues we were just talking about for distributing software. The actual magazine in this instance would come on a physical disc, which would be readable by a computer. So rather than receiving a physical magazine in the mail, you would receive a disc, you'd put the disc in the machine, and you could actually read the magazine on your computer. It consisted usually of both articles and runnable programs and games. And what that meant is that you no longer had to type those programs and games into the computer. They were already in a runnable form. So basically you were getting early software distribution through these magazines. And the very first publication that took this model and ran with it was a publication called Soft Disk Magazine with its first volume published back in 1981. That magazine was originally focused on the Apple II, but would eventually expand to multiple platforms, including the Commodore 64, the IBM PC, and Apple Macintosh when it was available. Now, I do want to talk briefly, and we've talked about this a little bit before on the podcast, about the different computer formats and proprietary nature of how hardware was at the time. Back when computers were first really becoming a an environment for personal computing or for gaming or just personal productivity. Computers were not standard. If you were on a computer platform, you could almost bet that any software you get for that platform would not run on any other platform. They were all proprietary hardware, proprietary operating systems, and every single platform had its own eccentricities and specific things that needed to be done in order to work on that computer. So if you had a Commodore 64, you better buy programs for the Commodore 64. It's not like you're going to run an IBM-based program on there. Similarly, Apple was totally different, and I mean, I guess Apple still is different to this day. But regardless, back then, every single computer platform almost was not compatible. That's why eventually, as the 80s rolled on, the concept of the IBM-compatible PC, as IBM really took the forefront of most of the personal computing environment. That's why that was a big deal, because now companies were creating computers that would be compatible and therefore shared at least some degree of common architecture that would allow you to run pretty much any program that would be written for that kind of platform. But back then, it didn't exist. Every platform is a little bit different, which is why magazines like Softdisk Magazine had to publish their content in multiple formats. Now, that distribution mechanism became a major way. There's like one of the major ways that games would be distributed and would be able to get from developers to hobbyists. So that was something that was created and that was really, really starting to get that software distribution concept to be more broadly available across the industry. Now I want to take a little bit of a pivot and talk about the formation of what would become id software. And for anybody who may not be aware, id software is one of the companies that has been at the forefront of a lot of major advancements in computer technology. It is probably most famous for their first-person shooters like Wolfenstein 3D, uh, Doom, Quake, Rage to less of, a, of an extent, but they're still around today. It is still working in the computing industry, working on awesome first-person shooters, just like the Doom reboot and its sequel that came out within the last few years. But back then, it wasn't even a thing yet, but 
the founding members of id software all met themselves while working for soft disk magazine and we'll go through each of the members of what would be the founding fathers of id and we'll start with john romero and john romero got his start programming games for the apple ii back in 1980 and this was kind of a common theme with the computing environment. And we've talked about this also a little bit on the podcast where a lot of times in the eighties, there was anybody who wanted their program for computers. They kind of just met each other at, at computer clubs or, or at high school computer labs and things like that. And they just, everybody was trying new things. There was a lot of experimentation. There were a lot of unknowns because nobody knew what computers would fully be capable of. They were productivity machines. Not many people had tried to create games on them and people that did create games on them were trying to wade water in a completely unknown body of water. So there were a lot of things that were unknown. A lot of experimenting was happening at the time. And John Romero in particular had experimented with a lot of different pieces of software and his software was featured in a number of disc magazines of the time across various platforms. He would develop not just for a single platform, but would really be trying to develop across multiple platforms. And he continued to hone his programming skills throughout the eighties and in the process founded a couple different companies. He did actually spend a brief period of time at Origin Systems, which people may recall is uh, most popular, at least at this time, for publishing the Wing Commander and Ultima series of games. Now, Romero himself, he strikes me as kind of an idea guy. He's always trying to be a mover and a shaker, coordinating deals, pushing boundaries of what might be possible. He is definitely the idea guy in id software, or at least from a business and strategic perspective. And one of his most influential early games, this is before id Software was formed, was a game called Dangerous Dave, which was released in 1988 for the Uptime Disc magazine. He had originally created this game to accompany an article that he had written about a graphics-based add-on for AppleSoft Basic, Basic being an early programming language for the computers. Basic stands for Beginner's All-Purpose Symbolic Instruction Code. It was an early high-level computer programming language for computers, and it was ported to various platforms. Dangerous Dave was inspired, at least to a degree, by Nintendo Super Mario Brothers series. And we have to compare consoles and arcades to PC games at the time. And we have talked about this a bit before. Generally speaking, arcades and consoles had graphics quality that was pretty superior to computers at the time. Certainly arcades had superior quality graphics to both consoles and PCs. And one of the capabilities that dedicated gaming hardware had over the computers of the time were smooth horizontal and vertical scrolling. Now, that scrolling capability was not really available for computers, at least not with any degree of fidelity. There were a couple of early games, and one of them that springs to mind is a game called Moon Patrol, which was an arcade port that did have some smooth scrolling, at least in a single direction. But no computer games of the time were really having the ability to scroll in both horizontal and vertical directions smoothly. And you can think about Super Mario Brothers and how their levels are constructed. When you move in the Super Mario Brothers game and you move off to the side of the screen, the screen naturally scrolls with you. So you don't have a loading time. The screen just moves with your movement. If you go up, 
the screen moves up with you. And maybe not in the first Super Mario so much, but in the later Super Marios, you had vertical and horizontal movement together. The first, I'm trying to remember, might have only been horizontal. Regardless, it was all smooth scrolling on consoles and arcade games. On PC, side-scrolling wasn't really smooth, and Dangerous Dave was no exception. Once you would reach the edge of the screen in Dangerous Dave, a new screen would paint entirely, similar to how the original Legend of Zelda worked, where rather than having the screen scroll with you, you would reach the edge of the screen, go onto the next screen, and then the screen would magically kind of move into place or appear. It doesn't mean it's a bad thing, but the technology for PCs to allow that kind of scrolling, like in Mario Brothers, didn't even exist, so you couldn't even have a true Mario-style game for the computer because the technology just wasn't there. In 1989, John Romero, after having some successes with his various software programs, moved to Shreveport, Louisiana, and joined Soft Disk Magazine to work on their Big Blue Disk disk magazine, which was specific to IBM PCs. Uh, IBM being one of its uh, nicknames is or has always been Big Blue. Several months later, starting a PC games division at Soft Disk Magazine, John Romero was one of the head founders or the leads for Gamer's Edge, which was a subsidiary or at least part of Soft Disk Magazine. And their goal was to release a brand new game every two months, a full-fledged brand new game every two months. That kind of thought is almost an impossibility in today's world, where most software or most games that you play take years to develop. Back then, a couple months, you could churn out an entire game without too much difficulty. So time went on, and then as of July 1990, it was time to build out the team for Gamer's Edge, and one of the first members to join the team was a man named John Carmack. Now, John Carmack had been working for Soft Disk Magazine for the Apple IIGS version of the magazine as a freelance developer. Now, as a child, Carmack was a genius. Well, probably a genius his whole life. But as a child, he was basically described as a brain on legs. So this is like genius level intellect. He also got into some trouble early on, which it's interesting. A lot of times people that are just super geniuses sometimes don't really know the social cues to to not get in trouble sometimes. I'm not saying that Carmack had that issue, but he did run into some trouble in his early ages all around computers and trying to get into like computer labs and do stuff. So it wasn't even like horrible <laughs> crime level stuff. It was more about trying to be more of a computer genius than what he otherwise was. We'll talk more about Carmack's contributions to id Software in a little bit, but suffice it to say that he was one of the most influential individuals in pushing computer technology probably of all time. Regardless, Romero hired Carmack to work on Gamer's Edge, and that wasn't the last hire that Romero would do. He also brought on an individual named Adrian Carmack, who was pretty much responsible for a lot of the art. He was part of the art department in SoftDisk. Uh, he was not related to John Carmack, despite having the same last name. So Adrian Carmack was brought over to work on Gamer's Edge. There was another individual named Tom Hall, who was the editor of SoftDisk magazine, was asked by John Romero to help with the design of the games that that team would be working on. And Tom Hall would come in at night. He didn't seem like he was officially part of the division per se, but he was definitely a contributing member of the team insofar as he would help provide feedback or ideas or pointers as the rest of the Gamer's Edge group was working on their games. 
So the team, now formed and together, began to work on Gamer's Edge release titles. And one of the first ones that they worked on were Ports of Dangerous Dave and also a previous game that John Carmack had created called Catacomb. Work proceeded as normal and they would be focused on releasing that that one game per couple months until one night of September 1990. John Carmack was working on a new side-scrolling engine. And once again, side-scrolling, at least smooth side-scrolling on computers, wasn't really a thing at the time. And Tom Hall, as he often did overnight, would come in and he was looking at what Carmack was working on. And he noticed that Carmack had done something pretty special. He had created a way for games to smoothly scroll horizontally on a computer. And since this wasn't really a thing, Hall was incredibly excited and he convinced Carmack to build a demo overnight using the first level of Super Mario Brothers 3, which had recently been released, as kind of the base idea. And they used Dangerous Dave, John Romero's character, as the character in the demo. And they named the game, which was really just a one-level, kind of very simple pitch, Dangerous Dave in Copyright Infringement. And you can kind of see where that name comes from. It was kind of a little funny, tongue-in-cheek way of, of presenting the demo because effectively Dangerous Dave was Romero's character and he was walking around the world of Super Mario Bros. 3. So you can see where the whole copyright infringement idea came from. So Carmack worked on that overnight showed Romero the next morning, and he was blown away. He believed that this was the future of computers, of computer technology. He had never seen anything like this before. Uh, he believed that this was going to be their ticket out of soft disk. Once again, showing that he was an idea guy and really trying to think about the future and how they could continue to progress as individuals, but also as a team. So, the team began to work in secret on a full port of Super Mario 3. And the way they did this, they didn't really have machines that were capable of building this game themselves. So they actually borrowed, and I use that term very loosely, soft disk computers on the nights and weekends to work on this unofficial port. Now that port, that unofficial port, would eventually be sent to Nintendo itself and the team had some grand aspirations. They basically said, hey, look, this is what we can do. We can port your game over to PC. Nintendo, will you let us do it? And Nintendo, as I think everybody is pretty much aware, is incredibly protective of their intellectual property. So Nintendo came back and said, thanks, but no thanks. We appreciate the effort. Looks awesome. You did a great job. But we're not really interested in breaking into the PC market at the time. We're more interested in creating really crappy games for the Philips CDI. Well, no, wait, they didn't actually say that, but that's kind of what eventually happened. But we'll save that story for another episode. But we will go back to id Software. And at this point, the team wasn't really called id Software, but they had um, coined their company name. They had called themselves Ideas from the Deep. And that was actually a previous company name that Romero had used for some of his prior titles. Um, but despite that failure with Nintendo, the crew had been formed. They were now operating under a pseudo company kind of thing with ideas from the deep. And 
you know, I do just want to call out, and this kind of comes across anyway, this was really one of those early examples of John Carmack being a genius level programmer. He did something that nobody else was really able to do. We're going to see this a lot as we talk about John Carmack. This will not be the first time we talk about John Carmack. So the team had an early success there with that Super Mario Brothers 3 port, even though it didn't get published by Nintendo or picked up by Nintendo, they were still very enthused by the technology and they realized that with the technology they had in place, they'd be able to create something special, but they really didn't feel like soft disk was going to appreciate that this was going to be the future of computer entertainment. So around that time, John Romero was contacted by an individual named Scott Miller from Apogee Software. We talked a little bit about Scott Miller during our Duke Nukem 3D episode. And Miller had originally wanted the team, after seeing this side-scrolling capability, he wanted the team to create new levels for a game that Softdisk had originally released uh, previously called Pyramids of Egypt. Unfortunately, because Softdisk owned the rights to that particular game, the team couldn't really do anything there without Softdisk's permission, and they weren't going to get that. So John Romero, John Carmack, and the rest of the crew began to work on a new game based on the smooth scrolling technology from the Mario demo they had worked on. The only caveat is that it had to fit into the method of distribution that Apogee was pioneering at the time, and that was the shareware distribution model. And shareware, we talked about this before too. There's a little bit of, it's interesting, as we start looking at computer history, you will see how a lot of different events begin to overlap because a lot of these landmark titles had a little bit of a shared history between the different players and the different technologies that were coming about. So I apologize for anybody who this might be a little bit of a refresher or might have heard this on a prior episode a little bit, but I do think it's important to have the context whenever we have these discussions. So for anybody who may be unaware of what shareware is, basically the way it worked is that you would have a game that was episodic, and that doesn't necessarily mean that there was one connecting story. It's not like the episodes of the telltale kinds of games that you would get now, where it's almost like a television show with episodes. This was more just collection of levels. And the way shareware worked was that the first episode for any given software release was free, and that might be anywhere from eight to 10 levels or so. And then the rest of the episodes, and there could be anywhere from an additional two to five episodes beyond that first, you would pay for. You would actually submit a check or you would call in, pay by mail, pay by phone, and then the software company would send you the rest of the game. So that distribution varied as history played on. A lot of times early shareware was actually distributed on floppy disk in stores, sometimes in those plastic baggies like we were talking about from the late 70s, early 80s, other times in a little bit more uh, polished kinds of packaging. And I remember the very first shareware title that I bought was the original Doom shareware. That was actually something where uh, that was one of the first computer games that I got. Once I had a computer that could actually run it, that was one of the first things I got. And wow, the rest is history, as they say. Um, shareware itself originated in the early 80s and kind of sort of similar distribution methodology or at least concept as what was going on with some of the disc magazines of the time. But it really became popular in the early 90s. And most of that popularity or a lot of it was driven by Apogee Software because Apogee was really one of the pioneers in shareware distribution. So with that in mind, the team at Softdisk created the game but they did so while remaining at Softdisk the entire time. 
Tom Hall worked on the design. Adrian Carmack worked on the art as were their specialties. And then John Carmack and John Romero were all about programming the game and creating the levels for the game. Now, Hall believed that backstory was essential in gaming. He thought that you can't have a game without having some form of narrative or backstory. And that would be something that Tom Hall would keep with him for pretty much the entirety of his uh, computer industry experience or career. He always believed that story was essential in gaming, no matter what kind of game you're making. So he came up with a pretty extensive backstory, especially by platformer standards, and he worked to include those story elements in the game as readable text. So elements of Commander Keen, actually the elements of that story, whose real name was Billy Blaze, or at least name in the game is Billy Blaze, came directly from Tom Hall's childhood. So he basically designed some of his childhood things into the game, like the Green Bay Packer helmet that uh, Billy or Commander Keen would wear. The red sneakers that he would wear throughout the game, that came also from the kind of sneakers that Tom Hall wore during his childhood. Uh, And at this time, while they were working, while Hall, Carmack, Carmack, and Romero were working on the game, they also worked with another individual from Softdisk, a man named Jay Wilbur. He acted as the manager of the unofficial project. And the way they did this, very similar to what they did with the Super Mario demo or port, is they utilized soft disk computers pretty much any time they weren't working on an official soft disk game. And with that, with using that hardware that was available to them, they completed the very first Commander Keen game, Invasion of the Vorticons, in December of 1990. And that was effectively a three-episode game. First episode being available as shareware, and the second two available if you either mailed in or called in a payment, they would send you the rest of the game. Commander Keen, that original trilogy, was a success, was a big success by any standards. Apogee Software, uh, the publisher of the game, they were used to making around $7,000 a month on sales, on average, for the software they distributed. Within a couple weeks of Commander Keen's release, it was pulling in $30,000 a week by itself. It more than quadrupled the sales of the entire company by itself. By June the following year, so around six months after its initial release, it would be making $60,000 a month for Commander Keen alone. It was a huge success. It received tons of critical acclaim. There was nothing like this that had ever been seen on computers before. Yes, on consoles, similar kinds of technology existed, but computers, it just was not a thing, and it blew everybody away. Some people even went so far as to say Nintendo has come to the computer, essentially comparing the quality of Commander Keen to all of Nintendo's platformers. And for anybody who's a Nintendo fan or or just knows about Nintendo, you realize that they created a ton of platforming experience. I think Nintendo is probably one of the better platform developers out there. So I do have to interject a little bit of a personal reaction here. When anybody says, so I don't know who said Nintendo has come to the computer. I get conceptually what they were trying to say. But if you take any Nintendo platformer, well, maybe not any, but let's say a Nintendo first-party platform game. Let's say Super Mario Bros. 3. And you compare Super Mario Bros. 3 to the original Commander Keen trilogy, the Invasion of the Vorticons. You can pretty quickly see a difference in quality. Just to put it into perspective, Commander Keen came out in 1990. Super Mario 3 
on the Nintendo Entertainment System was already two years old, at least in Japan, and almost a year old in North America. And if you put them side by side, I would be curious to see if anybody would look at the two screens or look at the two sets of gameplay and say, oh yeah, Commander Keen, that's objectively better than what's available on console. So I'm not trying to discredit or discount the significance of Commander Keen on computer and the underlying technology that made it work. But what I am saying is that it's a little bit disingenuous to compare directly Commander Keen to Nintendo platformers. Nintendo platformers, even at that time, were pretty much leaps and bounds beyond what was available on computer, even with Commander Keen. This is just one of those situations where the technological advancement is actually more important than the game itself. And we will talk about this more as when we get to the review section of our discussion. Now, Commander Keen would expand beyond those initial three episodes. It would actually go on to have six and a half episodes released over the course of 1990 into 1991. So just to go over that timeline for everybody to have some awareness. The original trilogy, the original first set of three Commander Keen episodes, which was Invasion of the Vorticons, that was worked on using the softest computers, working on nights, weekends, other off times. That was the very first set that was released. Those episodes were released using a shareware model published through Apogee Software. The team received their first royalty check and realized they could make more money and be more successful outside of Softdisk, so they pretty much decided at that point to leave. Interesting story here. Their boss found out that the game had been created using Softdisk machines, and that could have resulted in a significant amount of legal trouble because the way this works generally... Uh, and I'm assuming at the time, it certainly works this way in my company. If you create something using company resources, whatever you create effectively becomes the intellectual property of the company. So Softdisk effectively owned the intellectual property for Commander Kane because the team developed the software using their machines. Now, of course, the team didn't want to give up the rights to Commander Keen. They knew they had a hit on their hands. They had gotten some money already. They wanted to continue to get money. They didn't want to give it to Softdisk. So they made a deal with Softdisk where the new company, which now would be called id Software, would continue to produce a new game for Softdisk every two months for around the next year. But at the same time, as long as they were fulfilling that contractual commitment, they would be free to pursue other ventures as well. As part of that agreement... They created another game in the Commander Keen universe called Keen Dreams, and they published it through Softdisk. This would effectively be a bridge between the original Invasion of the Vorticons trilogy and their next set of Keen Adventures. So because Keen Dreams was published through Softdisk, it hasn't really been included in many re-releases. It's oftentimes considered to be episode 3.5 or a lost episode in the Keen series, and I don't even think you can buy it today. I was able to find it on uh, a couple of abandonware sites, but I do not believe it's available for purchase. Both episode 3.5 and episode 6 do not appear to be available for purchase on Steam or GOG or pretty much anywhere. Uh, the reason for episode 3.5 not being available is because it was a soft disk exclusive and it was not really owned by id Software. But Keen Dreams was actually important in the overall Commander Keen series because id Software was able to use Keen Dreams as a prototype 
for testing out some other new features for what would go into their next set of Keen Adventures. Originally intended to be another trilogy and published with Apogee using the traditional three-episode kind of shareware model. So the team started working on that next trilogy. After the first game in the trilogy was nearly complete, John Romero sent a version of the game to a fan that he had met up in Canada, a man by the name of Mark Rain, and he had asked him to play test the experience. Romero thought that Rain had a lot of great input. He played the game, he provided a lot of feedback, and Romero thought it was very valuable. So in addition to that play test, and because Mark Rain had some business experience, John Romero brought him into id as a probationary president to help expand the company. Now, when I saw this, first thing that came to my mind was, boy, talk about a dream job for a fan of a software company. Imagine that you are a fan of a company, you're getting a chance to play Tesla's game, and then randomly out of the blue, somebody says, hey, would you like to be a president at the company? I think my answer to that would be a resounding yes. I'm sure many others would as well. So Mark Rain joined the team. He was now a probationary president for id, and he didn't waste any time at all with getting uh, up to speed with what was going on, he was able to broker a deal with another publisher named Formgen to bring Commander Keen to retail stores rather than the mail-in shareware kind of purchase mechanism that had been prevalent at the time. What this basically meant is that the second trilogy that id had been planning wasn't actually a trilogy. The sixth episode of the series, which was entitled Aliens Ate My Babysitter, was released to retail as a separate standalone game, which meant that the other two episodes, episodes four and episodes five, were the only episodes released under Apogee using the shareware kind of model. As you might imagine, Scott Miller was not particularly happy with the break from the three-episode shareware model. He thought it was going to create confusion. He thought it would result in lower sales because rather than a three-episode kind of structure, you're only getting two episodes. So he was not a fan of the fact that id was kind of going off and doing their own thing. As the game series itself developed, though, so too did the technology and capabilities that the team was able to fold into the game. And we can really clearly see a difference between the first trilogy, which was Invasion of the Vorticons, and the rest of the Dream, or the rest of the Keen games. The first trilogy, the best way you can describe it, is primitive, especially in comparison to console platformers of the time. It had a very limited color palette, it had only PC speaker audio, which basically meant a bunch of beeps and bloops, and no real sound blaster or other audio card kind of support. There was no music, the control set was pretty darn limited, it was just a very, in comparison to other console games at the time at least, very, very primitive. The second set of episodes, starting with Keen Dreams and then moving on into episodes 4, 5, and 6, would pretty much improve upon all aspects of the game. It included synthesized music, much higher quality graphics, ad-lib and sound blaster support, uh, expanded controls. It was, it was really almost like a completely different game, and that really was a testament to id Software becoming more adept at creating the game and its levels. I think what happened was... And I don't have anywhere where I can prove this, but I think what happened was id Software, those guys were working at Softdisk Magazine. They were making a game every two months. Those games were not going to be super deep experiences. They were kind of going to be games that were 
Playable, certainly, might be fun, but weren't going to be things that were going to last a really long time. They probably took that same kind of development mentality to the very first Commander Keen game, and that's how they developed that original title. So they really didn't go beyond that. They almost took that same kind of methodology to that initial trilogy. Once again, that is my conjecture on the situation, because once the company was off on its own and doing its own thing, the games they released were dramatically more advanced than what that initial trilogy was. And it's not like there was a significant amount of time that passed in between the first trilogy and the next set of episodes. So that's my assumption as far as how that went. I have no idea if that's true or not. So once again, just pure guess on my part. Beyond the six and a half episodes that id worked on directly, there would also be a Game Boy Color release in 2001 entitled simply Commander Keen, but none of that original team was involved in the creation other than giving permission for the game to be created. The original series itself would also be released in several anthologies over the years and would make its way to Steam in 2007, other than, of course, Commander Keen 3.5, The Keen Dreams, as well as Episode 6, Aliens Ate My Babysitter. So there was definitely a legacy here. Commander Keen demonstrated what was possible in computers. It it demonstrated brand new technology. And that young upstart team, id Software, quickly became the talk of the town. They were now free to pursue their own projects, so they had to figure out what to do next. That, however, is a story for another day. We're now going to start talking more specifically about how it feels to play Commander Keen in 2022. Before we do that, we'll talk about what Commander Keen really was. So it was a side-scrolling platform action game. That basically meant a few different things. So you had some limited controls. Of course, with a side-scrolling platform game, and this was both vertical and horizontal, so it wasn't just side-scrolling technically. You could go vertically as well as horizontally. So you would be dropped into any number of levels. You could shoot with your blasters. You could pogo stick on enemies once you actually got the pogo stick, at least in episode one, and then future episodes you had full access to the pogo stick, uh, except for episode 3.5, which was kind of a little weird, kind of off on its own, doing its own thing. Regardless, you are able to shoot, you could jump on some enemies' heads, others you couldn't because it would kill you. In general, one hit would kill you. There was no life bar or anything like that. There were no real power-ups to speak of for the most part. It's not like in the Super Mario Brothers where if you got a mushroom and grew bigger, you could take one hit before you got uh, decimated. No, in Commander Keen, one hit kills. Uh, Some enemies had to be avoided. So pretty typical kinds of platform stuff. It wasn't anything particularly different from a platformer perspective. Uh, There was a lot of jumping from platform to platform, as you might expect in a platform game. The overall structure of the episodes was very similar to other shareware types of games that we've talked about. Each episode, there were three episodes per trilogy, obviously, Each episode would have multiple levels per episode, and each episode was themed differently. 
And the way that each episode would start, there would basically be a very small cutscene, so to speak, at the beginning and end of each episode that would provide the story of that episode and then the story to come if you got the following episode. And this very obviously was Tom Hall's contribution or one of his contributions to the game, having an actual backstory for each of the episodes. Each episode, along with being themed differently, each had different goals, although from a structural perspective, they all play the same. Basically, the way it worked is you would have an overworld map, very similar to the map you would see in Super Mario Bros. 3, and you would navigate around that overworld to go to different levels. You would have to go into those levels and complete whatever the goal was. And each of the episodes, like we were talking about, had a different goal. And as you would go through the game, the game would track your progress towards that goal. There might be some levels that were completely unnecessary to complete in order to actually complete the game. They were optional. Um, a number of other episodes or another number of other levels were required because they had something to do with the goal of the episode you were trying to accomplish. Um, there was a pretty big distinction between the original trilogy versus uh, Keen Dreams, which was episode 3.5, and then the the next couple of episodes, which would have been a trilogy, but wasn't really a trilogy, and then episode six. So there were some pretty big changes that occurred between those uh, different groupings of episodes. And as we talk through the game, because things differed so greatly from the point of Commander Keen episode one to the point that we would get to Commander Keen episode six, when we talk through the uh, various sections like the graphics, the sound and music, the story, playability, overall feel. We're actually going to talk about it from two different perspectives. We're going to look at the original trilogy and then we're going to look at every other episode because every other episode kind of shares the same ideals. Keen Dreams is the only one that is a little bit different. In Keen Dreams, you uh, no longer have a pogo stick. I believe you don't have a pogo stick in that one. Um, you also don't have a blaster. The blaster is replaced by flower power, and uh, basically, it's it's an entirely different kind of experience. You can kind of see, and you kind of see how it's a bridge between episodes one through three, and then episodes four through six, which is why it was basically a prototype for what was to come. So it was definitely a little bit different than the episodes that would follow, and certainly different than the episodes that preceded it. So we are going to start talking about each of those, but before we do, I do want to take a look at the back of the box because a lot of times when we would be picking up games back then, we didn't really know about them other than looking at the box and figuring out what the marketing department was trying to sell us on. Now, the interesting thing with Commander Keen is that because it was primarily distributed as shareware, I don't know that there really was a box for some of these episodes. Uh, so we're going to read the back of the box, so to speak, from the marketing materials for Commander Keen Invasion of the Vorticons. I don't believe there was actually a physical box for this game. If there was, I wasn't able to find it or it's so rare that, boy, somebody would have a, uh, a pretty nice museum piece if they actually had it. But here is what the developers say about Commander Keen. It says... Can Billy Blaze, alias Commander Keen, defend us from the Vorticon invaders? Exciting features, ultra-high-speed smooth animation, 
full screen, 360 degree scrolling play fields, arcade quality sound effects, joystick supported, built instructions and help. I suppose that should be built in instructions and help. Save and restore up to nine games, hundreds of screens to explore, many funny cinematic animations, makes an IBM outshine an Amiga. Those are some fighting words right there because anybody who is aware of older computer technology knows Amiga was pretty much the name of the game if you wanted to get high quality graphics and sound. So those were some pretty high kinds of... Uh, comments or some some pretty interesting comments by id software trying to sell their game in comparison to amiga anyway we are going to move on to talking about the individual elements of the game now we are going to start with the graphics once again we're going to talk about this from the perspective of both sets of episodes and i'll just use the term original trilogy and new trilogy even though the new trilogy wasn't really a trilogy. We're going to forget about that just to keep it simple. So for the original trilogy, The Invasion of the Vorticons, oh boy, these graphics are kind of rough. Very limited color palette. There's probably maybe 16 colors on the screen. It's actually a bit more retro than what the retro indie style of today is, or at least the popular version of indie retro style is today. It's more retro than that. You can really tell that this is an early computer game with early computer graphics. And the graphics for that first trilogy, they don't really hold up today. They're not stylized. They're just technically from a time that we've moved on from. There's nothing particularly special about them when compared to the rest of the gaming scene from that time. These were okay for the time but nowadays it does not hold up that being said if you compare it to other computer platform games of the time the speed of the game the smoothness and the general quality of the graphics they were okay they definitely stood over their computer game peers but if i look at it through today's lens I'm not really sure this is something that I'd want to stare at for any prolonged period of time. And just for reference, I did stare at it for a prolonged period of time because the way I the way I prepare for this podcast is by playing through every single game we talk about in its entirety in the way that it was designed to be played. So that means if there were emulation things, I don't use emulation to the extent possible, or at least if I do, I don't use save states or anything like that. I use the features of the game. So I did play through the entire original trilogy of Commander Keen, and I have thoughts. So I will share them as we go through this section. But graphics-wise, first trilogy was kind of rough. The new trilogy was a dramatic improvement. It was still a relatively limited color palette. I still think it was EGA versus VGA, even though VGA was, it was a dual EGA VGA mode. I don't know that it used full VGA color. Um, At least it didn't seem like it did, but it was much more impressive than the first trilogy. There was also a little bit of a shift from the perspective in the game. The original trilogy was like a pure two-dimensional kind of thing. You're like looking, looking at a flat screen and in the new trilogy there was a bit of more 3d perspective for the side scrolling that basically allowed the graphics to contain a bunch more detail that second trilogy the episodes four through six felt more like a nintendo-esque take on platformers versus the original trilogy which was just a little bit too primitive moving on to sound and music for the original trilogy 
there wasn't all that much in the way of music. Actually, there was none because all they did was they used the PC speaker for audio. That was the exclusive way that sounds were generated for the original trilogy. There was no music. Now, I do have to question this one. This this one feels very much like we were talking about before, that this was effectively just an evolution of that month or every two months create a game kind of mentality versus sitting down to make something truly special because there were plenty of other games out at the time that took advantage of the full audio capabilities of computers. My guess is that that limited experience or creating those limited experiences for soft disk really did impact their ability or their desire to create full-fledged audio. Um, They just didn't think that they needed to, to have a good game and absolutely true. You don't need amazing audio to make a, a game But boy, does it help. The audio in the original Commander Keen trilogy was is best described as quaint by today's standards. Um, It's even probably quaint by 1990 standards. The sound effects were okay, but I, I don't know if anybody doesn't have nostalgia or particular nostalgia for this game's specific beeps and bloops. I don't know that anybody's gonna look at it and say, oh wow, that's like my favorite part of the game. I just It was very primitive, and not to say that there's anything wrong with PC speaker audio. There have actually been games that have utilized PC speaker audio to great effect. Access Software, as an example, with their, I believe it's called Real Audio Drivers, I think that's what it was called, where they basically were able to play actual voice. Granted, it wasn't high quality, but they were able to play actual voice and music through PC speakers and make it not sound like a PC speaker. There were other companies like LucasArts that were creating games that utilized the PC speaker and actually played music through it. You could even listen to the original Secret of Monkey Island theme, which had been released a couple months before Commander Keen, and it had full audio support for PC speakers. And I mean, the Monkey Island theme, not to get off on too much of a tangent, but that's like one of the best themes in all of gaming. And it even sounds good on a PC speaker. So the opportunity or the technology was there. The original Commander Keen trilogy just did not exploit it to the degree that I would have wanted. Now, the new trilogy, I actually loved the music in episodes four, five, and six. I loved the music. Um, A couple of the tracks were a little bit too cartoony for me. It just felt a little bit overly cartoony, but there were some tracks that felt like a really nice jazzy kind of feel and actually reminded me of some of the kind of styled tracks from the Tex Murphy series of games. And I loved it. I thought that that the music for the new trilogy was really good. And to me, it's amazing how adding a little bit of music to a game can dramatically increase the enjoyment of the experience. Once again, it is not a requirement but man, the the new trilogy, I was really impressed with the music in that one, especially coming from the original trilogy, which had nothing and only had sound effects via the PC speaker. I was it's it's like a light years worth of improvement from the first trilogy to the new trilogy. Talking about the narrative and story there was a surprisingly detailed backstory for both the original trilogy and the new trilogy. And the backstory kind of goes like this. Billy Blaze, child genius. He's basically working in his garage. He invents all sorts of things. 
such as the Bean with Bacon Mega Rocket, which, uh, I, you know, I guess if, I guess it's funny. I don't know. Some of the jokes in here were a little bit elementary to me, like kind of like, oh, beans, bean with bacon kind of, I don't know. Uh, maybe I was just in a little bit of a grumpy mood. <laughs> I could have been because playing the game sometimes, and we'll get to why I was grumpy about it. But I don't know. Some of the jokes kind of fell flat to me. I know what they were getting at, but kind of fell flat in the uh, story. In any event, the Bean with Bacon Mega Rocket allows Billy Blaze to travel to far off expanses of the solar system. By day, he's a boy genius, but if he puts on his special football helmet, he becomes Commander Keen, Defender of the Galaxy, uh, or something like that. Each episode of the game does have its own self-contained story. And for the first trilogy, that basically means each episode expands on the Vorticon threat. The Vorticons being a race of aliens that are hell-bent on destroying the world. Uh, like I said, the comedy here, fairly juvenile, but the story itself was more than I expected for a platformer. My personal opinion, though, and my personal preference, it felt like there were too many in-jokes here versus things that I would consider to be truly funny material. I do find it interesting that there was this much story in a platformer. Every single episode, you could go to a story page and you could read. It's like a multi-page thing. Every single episode has pages of story associated with it that I'm assuming Tom Hall put together. I probably wouldn't have cared if there really wasn't that much of a story here. I mean, I love story in games. I love narratives. I'm a big believer in, in playing RPGs and adventure games and really diving into the story platformers. I guess it's nice to have a story. This one, I probably would have given it a pass. I don't think it was absolutely necessary. I commend the effort. I think it was, it was a really good effort to put something in there. Um, now there was one area of the original trilogy that I really enjoyed and I thought they could have done more with. In some of the levels, uh, especially in episode one, or I guess only in episode one, uh, they had messages that were hidden in some of the levels where you could find these messages and they would kind of give out hints about either how to beat the boss or how to find secret blocks in the world. Some of them just had flavor text just to add to the overall mystery of the universe. I feel like they could have really done more with that. They could have they could have bumped that one up a bit, added some additional hidden or mysterious lore to the game to kind of build up the backstory a little bit. I would have loved it. I mean, I know that I just finished saying that, well, I would have given a pass on the narrative or story for the platformer, but I would have loved there to be some hidden lore in the game, something to keep me playing or something to keep me exploring around and looking around the game for hidden things. That's the kind of stuff I really like. And I wish they would have done more of that in the original trilogy. Now, the new trilogy had a very similar in-depth story to the game. They had same kind of story elements, much more detailed for a platforming kind of game than what I would have expected. That particular trilogy tells a tale of kidnapped oracles and an alien race bent on the destruction of the Earth. I can't say that it was particularly memorable, but I can appreciate and I do appreciate what they did with the story. Moving on to the playability and controls, for the original trilogy, uh, it felt okay, mostly. For some reason, and I have no idea why this is, it, I'm being serious, like, I don't know why this is, and maybe it was me, maybe something weird was going on with me, but for some reason, episode two 
felt like it controlled worse than episodes one and three. It felt like some aspects of the character's inertia or the general movement of the character was altered. I had played through episode one, I got used to the controls, I got to episode two, and it just felt different to me. I don't know why. Like I said, it could be in my head. I could be making it up, but it was definitely something I felt as I was playing the game, and it was noticeable enough for me to note it down and be like, hey, there's something weird going on here. If anybody else had an experience like that, let me know, because I want to know if it's just me or (laughs) I might just be crazy. Anyway, other aspects of the playability for that first trilogy were mostly fine. I will say, though, that the level design was not nearly as nuanced as what you would typically see in, say, a Nintendo platformer. Uh, Some of the levels that they designed literally felt designed to kill you. I mean, there's no other way to put it. There were so many kinds of gotchas in the levels that it started to get a little old for me. And the way it worked is you had no saves in the middle of levels. If you were playing a level, you had to beat the level in one try because if you got hit, you're restarting the level. So anytime you died, it would require a repeat playthrough. And there's some some sequences that you would have no way of knowing was dangerous. And it, it just felt inherently unfair. I mean, some examples, like there was this one section where you're walking in a pipe and there was an enemy hidden in a pipe, wasn't moving, wasn't anything. And as soon as you walk in the pipe, you die and you got to restart the whole level again. Now, of course, next time you get up to that area, you're going to shoot first and then you're going to be okay. But there'd be no way somebody going through that level for the first time would even consider that there was an enemy hidden in that pipe. And I believe, at least it was for me, that was the only time an enemy was hidden in a pipe. So like, why? Why? It just felt unfair. It felt like they were padding the game by introducing artificial difficulty. There were also plenty of examples of screens and falls that went well beyond your visible field of view, where you would jump down, you wouldn't be able to see the bottom. And of course, as you're landing, you realize that you're now about to land into a trap or a pit of poison or a barrel of fire. The only way you'd be able to avoid those is either via luck or knowing that the trap existed by dying there in the first place. It's just one of those things where from a design perspective, it was, I could see what they were doing. I could see that this was a team that was trying to figure out how to design a platform experience. These were not a group of seasoned platformer developers. They were people that were trying things out, were trying to make things work, and some things worked, some things did not. I felt that there was just a general unfairness with the design of some of the levels. Personal opinion, but that was how I felt, especially around the original trilogy. Now, the new trilogy was so much better, like so much better. The controls felt dramatically more responsive. They were still a little bit floaty at times. The biggest change, though, from a playability perspective was the addition of the ability to save at any time in any of the levels, which meant that you could basically save at any point as you're working your way through the levels. That made the whole experience dramatically easier than the first set of episodes. Basically, you could save state your way through the game. You could move, literally move an inch, save the game, move another inch, save the game if you wanted to. That served to reduce the overall frustration But, you know, that also made it feel like there was no real risk in the game because if you got to a particularly difficult section and you fail, as long as you saved it literally right before that section, you can just keep going and going and going until until you get past it. 
the risk versus reward here was dramatically reduced. And I know it sounds like I'm complaining both about the inherently harder difficulty of the first trilogy, and now I'm complaining about the relative ease of difficulty on the new trilogy, but I feel like there has to be a middle ground where there's a compromise between the unrelenting difficulty that the first three games had and the convenience of having the ability to save any time. There has to be a middle ground there somewhere that actually has a risk versus reward kind of thing and actually enables you to enjoy the challenge of the game without trivializing the challenge. I don't think either of the keen trilogies really hit the mark here, but I will say that the new trilogy was definitely much more playable than the first trilogy. So the overall feel of the game, how did it feel to actually play with all of those things that we just talked about in mind? The original trilogy, it just felt old. It did not really translate well into uh, modern times. It's not that I would call it unplayable. And I had a good time for the most part. If I put on my, hey, this is part of computer history hat and not look at it from the perspective of, hey, this is like a game from today, I could look at it and, and kind of understand the merits. I had a good time, but it is not without its faults. The biggest, the biggest impediment for me, it's not the graphics, it's not the sound, it is purely the unfairness of some of the difficulty. That was the thing that, to me, made the game turn from being a fun experience to a frustrating experience. And I am not one to dislike difficulty. I enjoy difficulty in games. I enjoy the sense of achievement that comes about by defeating a particularly difficult boss or level or even entire game. I enjoy difficulty when it is designed such that my mistakes are what I have to overcome in order to beat that difficulty. When I am getting thrown into a situation where the game and the game designers are going out to intentionally kill me and make it feel like like it's just an unfair kind of experience, that's where I start looking at it and saying, uh, no, this is not the right kind of difficulty. There are different kinds of difficulty, and it's not about being hard or easy or whatever, but it's about presenting a challenge that is surmountable based on your own skills and not necessarily a challenge based on guesswork or chance or luck or having gone through and experienced a booby trap before I mean booby traps sometimes are okay but the way that the original commander keen trilogy implemented the levels and designed the levels it was at least to me inherently unfair it felt like they were trying to pick a fight with the player and I gotta be honest if John Romero were in the same room with me as I was playing the game I probably would have wanted to punch him because there were some scenes that were just inherently unfairly difficult. Now, moving on to the new trilogy, this one felt really good, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed playing the new trilogy greatly. It felt more, this is where I could see the concept of Nintendo has come to PC. This is where I would say, you know what? Yeah, it did. This is a Nintendo-feeling game. When I think about a retro platform kind of experience or a classic platform kind of game, the style of the second Commander Keen trilogy is exactly the kind of thing that I think about. It's very similar to Super Mario, DuckTales, Mega Man, like those kind of styles of game is exactly what we got with the second Commander Keen trilogy. 
it was much more in line with what you would expect in the modern retro interpretation of the of the experience. That's really what those modern retro titles strive to capture. Looking at the second Commander Keen trilogy, it was much closer to that kind of experience. The first trilogy was just a little bit too old and a little bit too primitive in comparison. So new trilogy, highly recommended, felt very good. Original trilogy, it felt a little rough. So where does Commander Keen sit in our overall hierarchy of classic games? If I take Commander Keen as the sum of its parts, this becomes an interesting discussion. There have been, there's been a ton of evolution over the couple of years that all of the episodes were created. If I look just at the first trilogy, it is absolutely an important series. It is an important game release. It is something that from a computer technology perspective, it's incredibly important and you really shouldn't miss it from that perspective. But at the same time, I honestly don't think you should play it. It is a very rough experience. If you have nostalgia for it, this the answer might differ a little bit. Certainly, if you have nostalgia for the game, you could probably have a little bit of a different perspective there. If you're curious about how early computer platformers played and felt, then sure, take a look at it, see what the see what the historical significance of the game is. If you're looking for a game to play and have fun with, I cannot recommend the first Commander Keen trilogy. It is just it is just a little bit a little bit too rough around the edges. If I look at the second trilogy, those are games that you should absolutely play as they both represent the evolution of id software as a development team and they also demonstrate an early example of a truly fun quality platform experience on computers. So, second trilogy, you should play it. It's a great game. It's a lot of fun. It is still pretty darn difficult. Even with the saving, it is it does get pretty darn difficult in some levels. And the saving definitely negates a lot of that, but if you tried to play it like the original Commander Keen trilogy, uh, these actually might be harder than the original trilogy, if I look at it from that perspective. Now, given the fact that you can, in fact, save in the levels, it's kind of a moot point, but the second trilogy, highly recommend you to play. So with all that said, the good and the historical significance of the game outweighs the bad. So for that reason, if I look at Commander Keen as a series and not the individual episodes, but as a series, Commander Keen is one of our golden oldies. But I do have to stress this. If you want to see what all the fuss is about, just start with the second set of episodes. The first trilogy is too rough around the edges, too early and primitive by today's standards. If you don't have nostalgia for it, you're probably not going to have that great of a time. If you start with the second set of trilogies, I can guarantee you, you will probably have a pretty darn good time. That second set of trilogies, episodes four through six, that is Commander Keen at its best. That was our episode on Commander Keen. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. 
If you have any feedback or would like to provide suggestions, comments, or otherwise talk about classic gaming, I am here and I am listening. I do have a couple ways you can get in touch with me. I have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I also have an email address, ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. I am definitely interested in hearing what you all think. Before we sign off, do want to just mention that our next episode coming out in around a week is going to be focused on the Super Nintendo platformer, Donkey Kong Country. So if you have any fond memories of that game or would like to share your experiences, feel free to write in. I would love to hear what everybody is thinking when it comes to Donkey Kong Country, which, once again, we'll be releasing in around a week. I'd also like to remind everybody that regardless of where you're listening to this podcast, and we should be available pretty much anywhere the podcasts are available, it would be great if you could leave us a review on your podcast service of choice. This is not about bolstering star counts. It's not about trying to get a bunch of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome. That means we're doing something right. But I am definitely interested in hearing what everybody thinks. I legitimately want to try to make this the best possible podcast it can be. The only way I can do that is if I get feedback from the community to make sure that we are continuously evolving and making sure that we are delivering the podcast that everybody can enjoy. We are still growing. We're still developing this community. I am incredibly excited with what we've done so far, and I am looking forward to continuing to grow our community and continuing to deliver awesome podcast content into the future. Until next time, I hope everybody enjoyed this episode. And please remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone.